turn to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 1 and we're going to be in verses 9 through 20. And uh, we'll see how far. This, uh, this is a little sketchy today. Got a lot to cover. It's a great vision of Christ. But this is as we're headed towards the end of our series on the ascension. So let's, here's where we've been. Uh, the ascension of Christ begins with the resurrection, right? First, his exaltation. Let's say it that way. His exaltation begins with the resurrection. And sometimes we put a period there instead of realizing 10 days later is the ascension. And all of this that you see in the chart there on your notes... All of this flows from the ascension, and we've been looking at it. His, his glorification, his session, his seating at the right hand, his procession of the Spirit, the sending of the Spirit, his intercession as our royal priest, his direction of us as the sacrificial head of the church, his preparation for us as the exceptional host. I go to prepare a place for you. And if it were not so, I would have told you. And so we think we left last week with a warm, cuddly feeling. He's preparing for us. But he's also consecrating a royal priesthood for himself. And it is essential that he be judge. And he is judge of his church as he seeks to sanctify us. So here's the ascension question. And the question's there in your notes. How does distance distort our perception of who Jesus is right now? He's up there. We're down here. And we read the Gospels and we see a very earthly and a very human, though divine, Jesus. And there's a lot of people, sometimes distance distorts our perception. And I was thinking about this. How do people distort? Sometimes people think of just a generic God. And they never refer to God with anything other than God. And that's okay. He is God. But there's so many beautiful names in the scriptures, right? And if you're a new believer, it's very normal to do this. But if you've been a believer for more than a year or two, uh, three years, four years, and you're reading through the Bible, you should be utilizing the beautiful names of God's character. After all, they're the names he has revealed, right? And so anybody can say a generic God and fill in the content, right? What about the Jesus-only perception or distortion? Where I, I, there's a celebrity... Uh, woman, evangelical woman on Twitter that always talks about Jesus, 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 and never mentions the Father or the Spirit. And it's great to talk about Jesus. But when you focus just on him, typically it focuses, as we're going to see, only on his earthly ministry. So it's all, you know, this, this compassionate view. And he is compassionate, but he's more than that. Then there's a group that often distort and the spirit is everything and it's the spirit this and it's the spirit that and you never hear the father and and jesus kind of drifts into the into the uh, shadows and then there's the down to earth jesus and what do i mean by that well we know in the scriptures that jesus is meant to reveal the father if you've seen me you've seen the father and so 
these, these people have a distortion where they just go to the Gospels and say whatever Jesus is in the Gospels, that's what God is. They limit his revelation to merely what's in the gospel. And what that means is you end up with the distortion of a pre-ascended Jesus. What do I mean by that? We never think about Jesus as he is now in his ascension. Now, hopefully, by God's spirit, this series has, has freed you from this distortion. I hope you, you, it, it, it's being reinforced in your mind and heart that, yes, he was on earth, praise God, he is incarnate, but he's still incarnate where? In heaven. And he is ascended. And he's not merely incarnate, he's glorified. And he's the head over every all these things that we have been studying. So here's my question for you. Does your perception of Jesus need to change? Where are there distortions? Is he becoming more in focus through this study? Well, here's what I want you to see. The ascended Lord is not only the prophet, the priest, and the king, but he's also the judge, consecrating his people, sanctifying his people, examining our lives. That's a scary thing, but it can be a comforting thing. Jesus is judge. Now, I'm telling you, It's probably been a long time since you have heard a message or a lesson that Jesus judges his own people. Okay? And the judgeship of Jesus. Well, you're going to hear one today. So let's look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. Let's read the passage so we get into it. I, John, that's John the Apostle, your brother and fellow partaker in tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. And what he says there with those three things is as believers, we're headed to a coming kingdom and between us and the kingdom is suffering, which means we need to be persevering. That's what we need to be doing. And he was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Well, preaching Jesus in this fallen world can get you in trouble and it got him exiled. And I have a little map there on your notes of where Patmos is. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That's Sunday. He was in the Spirit. That is, here's a man who's so committed to the Lord, so committed to the local church, that even when he is exiled and separated from the church, he's having church within the Spirit on Sunday, the Lord's day. All right. So that's what a priority church was. And believe me, he's on Patmos. So he's not watching online as a substitute of being at church. He's watching online. He's worshiping the Lord because he can't be with the church, but he can still worship the Lord. And that's what he's doing. And he was there and he heard behind him a loud voice. Like the sound of a trumpet. So can you imagine you're, 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 you're worshiping, you're having your devotions there on the Lord's day, you're persecuted, you're exiled, you're all alone, and all of a sudden someone blows a trumpet behind your ear. I mean, he's just like, whoa, what was that? And it was a voice. It was a voice like a loud trumpet saying, write in a book what you see 
and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So the map that you can see there, these churches are the churches of Asia that tradition says the Apostle John was like the, he was the apostolic leader. At this point, he's the last living apostle. It's A.D. 95. The last apostle, the apostolic age, is passing away. He's the last one. He's kind of, he's, he's an apostolic leader of these seven churches. He's been exiled. They're probably worried, maybe even a little panicked. And the Lord, in this loud voice, speaks to him and says, Hey, I, I want to show you a vision And I want you to record all that you see. And what he sees is not only what we're about to read, but it's the entire book of Revelation is sent to these seven churches. So then what happens? Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice. Isn't that interesting? To see a voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, it's only once you have turned toward The speaking of God, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, referencing Daniel 7, 13 and 14. We've read that several times in this series. I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a fiery furnace. And his voice, which had started all of this, his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand, the hand of power, He held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. It's like getting full blasted looking into the sun and blinded by its brilliance. What happens? How would you respond to that? Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, Like a dead man. All that glory, all that holiness, all that brilliance. Boom. And how does the exalted, ascended Christ respond? He placed his right hand, that right hand of power. He placed it on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, this vision that he just saw, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. And then he explains, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or Angels can also be translated to the word for messengers. The messengers of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Whoa. What do we see in this? 
We see the risen Christ, the exalted Christ, the ascended Christ as judge. It's essential for the church to realize that Jesus isn't merely prophet, priest, or king. He's not merely our savior. He is also our judge. And as I said, he is probably, John is in his 90s. It's AD 95. He's at the end of the apostolic era. And here's the idea. Before John was going to understand the future of the book of Revelation, of the final judgment, he needed to know who the judge was. We need to get a clear perception of who Jesus is in order to prepare for his coming. You see, remember those distortions I showed you? If your view of Jesus is very limited to a down-to-earth Jesus, if it's limited to just the Gospels, and you don't see him as an ascended, exalted judge, you're going to live very differently between now and when he comes. And if the Apostle John, who was the most beloved of the disciples, and rested his head on the breast of the incarnate Jesus, needed this change of perception, I think all of us do. What do you think? Okay, and it would be, I mean, if anybody could have kept Jesus in cuddly mode, it was John. I used to have my head on on his chest when we ate. And John needed to see him exalted, ascended as judge. And we're going to see why that's a good thing. So here's what I want to do. In what I've read to you, there's nine characteristics of Jesus as judge that we're going to look at. We want to see a vision to change our perception of the ascended Jesus. I hope that the Spirit will pierce your heart to where you never again merely think of Jesus as an earthly one, but also a heavenly one. Both, not just one. So let's look at it. The first thing that we see in this vision is we want to see his supreme position. So according to verses 12 through 13, where is Jesus located in this vision? Where is he located? According to verses 12 through 13, or the first part of 13. Do what? Yeah, but where does, where is he exactly in the, in the vision in, at the beginning of verse 13? He's in the midst of the lampstands. And what were we told the lampstands were? The churches. So here is the exalted, ascended Jesus who is at the right hand of Father. And yet his position among the churches is supreme. He is standing in the midst of his churches. He is occupying a place of supreme preeminence among the churches. And notice no one else is standing with him. Not pastors. They're in his right hand, the seven stars. The one who is in the midst of the churches is the head of the church. We talked about that two weeks ago. He is large and in charge in the middle of his churches. And notice his supreme position reveals, the first thing I want you to see is the supreme purpose 
for his local churches. The local churches are called lampstands, okay? And a lampstand was a large or tall uh, piece of metal who had one purpose. It was to hold a lamp, a burning light. So what I want you to see, the purpose of the church is not to be the light. It's to bear the light into the darkness. The church is not the light. Jesus is the light, and we're supposed to constantly be pointing people to him and bringing him into the darkness, whether that's the workplace, whether that's school, whether that's your family. Maybe your family's a a, a place of darkness because they're unbelievers. You are to be a lampstand that bears the light and brings the light. That's what the lampstands are. But why are there seven lampstands? The reasons there's seven is because these seven churches 2,000 years ago represent all churches. And so what he's about to write in chapters 2 and 3 don't just go to the seven historical churches. It's true of all our churches. Here's what I want you to see this morning. Jesus at LifeBridge is in our midst. He's in our midst. And he's preeminent. And it's not about me. It's not about Pastor Bruce. It's not about you. It's about him. And he is here. And then why are the lampstands gold? Because the church is precious to him. The church is valuable to him. He purchased the church with his precious blood. He loves the local church. And we should value the local church like he values the local church because he is in the midst of the local church not a parachurch organization not a a, a camp you know our kids went to camp our students went to camp that's great and god meets them there but the fact is you come back and you live that out in the church because christ is at the center he's supreme but the most significant thing is his supreme presence In the middle of the church, his supreme presence says one like the son of man that takes us back to Daniel. I wish we had time to read it. It's it it, it means in Daniel seven, he is a human and he is divine and he is the king who ascends into heaven in Daniel seven. He ascends into heaven to receive a kingdom. And so this exalted ascended king jesus christ is in the midst of his church he is present he's the hub the churches are the spokes it should be about jesus you know what's interesting in this vision of christ according to verse 12 when john turned what was the first thing he saw look in your bibles verse 12 What's the first thing he saw? He saw the lampstands. He didn't see the Lord who is preeminent and in the center. He saw the lampstands first and then he saw Christ. You know why that is, I think? Because people see the church before they see the Lord. Here down here on earth, the first introduction people get to the Lord is us. 
And the question is, when they look at your life and when they look at my life, do they see some a lampstand that is pointing to the light or do they see a lampstand with just a flickering weak ember? Or do they see a lampstand that's dirty and, and just not, not pointing to anything? A Christian in name only. This is powerful stuff. And this is just the first characteristic. We better keep moving. Okay? What's the second thing? Here's the second. See his sovereign clothing. Here's Jesus in the midst of his church. But what is he wearing? Well, according to verse 13, I saw one like the Son of Man clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. So he's got like a a diagonal sash across his chest made of gold. What are we supposed to see here? Well, the robe and the sash represent his great, the great authority of prophets, priests, kings who judge God's people. The, The idea of the robe is when you study the Old Testament, prophets wore robes. Elijah had his mantle. Priests especially wore robes, and that's really the main focus here, or an important focus. Kings had their royal robes in the Old Testament, and judges wore robes. But here's what I want you to see. Prophets judged God's people by giving them God's word. Priests judged God's people by evaluating their lives and whether they were acceptable to enter God's presence. And kings would judge God's people as the ruler over them. And so the idea is here is Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. But he's here to judge his people. And I, this, whole, this whole lesson, I know you're like, some of you are just pulling back maybe, emotionally, spiritually. And you're thinking, judge Judging seems bad. Well, it, only, it, 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 it doesn't seem bad when someone's wronged you and you want to go to court. Then a judge is good because you want him to rule justly. All right? Judging is a good thing when it's done by the right judge. Are you with me? And this judge is the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's keep looking at it and see. And by the way... Whether we like it or not, he is judge. Okay, and so sometimes we need to just release our demands of who God must be and accept who he is and find that he is good even in his judging. But here's what I want you to to remind you. In Revelation 19, 13, Jesus is going to come back clothed with a robe dipped in blood. A robe dipped in blood. And some, there's question about what that blood is, but I think most basically it's his own blood that he shed on behalf of sinners. The judge shed his own blood for us. That's the first thing. He's dipped in blood. That means he's priest. And his name in Revelation 19.13 is called the Word of God. He's the prophet. And then in Revelation 19, 16, it says on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So when he comes back to judge, he does it as prophet, as priest, and as king. And he's going to come and he's going to judge. 
But before he judges sinners and unbelievers, he must first judge his church. And that's what's happening in this vision. And we don't hear that a lot. So the robe is his great authority. Why is it down to his feet? Christ has all authority to judge his church. You say, what's the deal with that? Well, in biblical times, the longer your robe, the greater your authority. Okay, so if you had the money and the power and the honor to have a long robe, so Grant, if your robe was like to your knees, but uh, uh, Josh's robe was to his feet, who had the greater authority? Josh says, yeah, that was me. That was me. I have the great. It's the length of your robe. Okay, so his robe is down to his feet. Remember in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, when the prophet Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and his robe filled the temple. That's a pretty big robe. In other words, he has all authority. Okay, so we're looking at the one who is clothed as a judge, who has authority to judge. But what is the stand? Well, let me say this before we move on. What is it that he's judging? Well, if we had time, we would read Revelation 2 and 3 and we would see he judges our doctrine to see if it's according to the word. He judges our beliefs as a church and as believers. He judges our lives to see if we're keeping his word and he judges our worship to see if it's holy. The Lord right now is in our midst as we teach, as we hear, as we pray, as we worship today, and he's evaluating LifeBridge. And he's evaluating us as members to say, are you living according to my standards? And what is that standard? Number three, the standard is see his sinless character. Look at verse 14. What does he judge us by? His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. This is interesting. What's going on here? He sees the robe and he looks up at the head and his hair is white and brilliant and shining like sun on, on, on pure white snow. Three things I want you to see. His righteous sinlessness. He judges rightly, and he judges according to his white, hot holiness. He doesn't judge on a curve. He doesn't judge maybe like your parents judge you, or, or maybe like you judge others, or maybe others judge you. He doesn't judge that way. He judges sinlessly with white, hot holiness. Secondly, he judges reasonably. Reasonably judgment, judgment that has mercy mixed with judgment. Why do I say this? Because Isaiah 1, 18 through 19 says this. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow, just as his hair is white. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool, if... You are willing and obedient. You shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
His judgment is reasonable. It is absolute, and yet there's mercy if we humble ourselves before him. Third, I want you to see is this is his requirement for his people. What does Peter say? What does Leviticus say? And then Peter also say, it says this, be holy as what? As I am holy. And so what's, what we're seeing here is Jesus is white hot holiness. His purity, his brilliance of his holiness. And he's saying, I judge you according to my holiness. You're my people. Be holy as I am holy. You know what's interesting about each letter that follows? Each letter begins with a characteristic taken from this vision. You know why that's important? Because he expects us to be holy, not in our own power, but by his holiness. He says, here's my holy. Give me your sinfulness. I will give you my holiness. And in exchange... I will enable you to live holy. But understand, it's not an option. It's a requirement. And it's a reasonable one required of his people. How active is the Lord in judging us? Look at number four. Look at his searching gaze. Look at his searching gaze in 14b. John sees his head, but then he sees his eyes. They're like Superman. They're like x-ray vision. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And here's what I want you to see. His watchful gaze is penetrating and it's purifying. He has a searching gaze. His eyes are flame of fire. And they are penetrating like an x-ray. They see everything. They miss nothing. Hebrews 4.13 says, There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. One of the greatest deceptions of God's people and of sinners in general is thinking that when no one else sees it, God doesn't see it. That we can do our sin and we can hide it from others. And God won't see it, but he sees everything. And he sees it with a fiery gaze. His desire is to see it and to purify your life. If you are his believer, if you are a believer in him. It's interesting in the seven churches, in, in the letters, in every letter it says something like this. I know your deeds I know your tribulation. I know where you dwell. I know. He sees it all. And here's what he wants us to know. That when he sees holiness, he sees it and rewards it. And when he sees sinfulness in his people, he deals with it. Like any good parent would do. Maybe you're wondering at this point whether... Is this really Jesus? <laughs> is this who Jesus really is? Look at number five. See his smoldering judgment. If you have any doubt of whether Jesus is a judge among his people, see his smoldering judgment in, verses, in verse 15. It's like John sees his head 
He sees his eyes and then he scans down to his feet. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. So from the fiery eyes to the burning feet. And here's the idea. When he sees sin, he moves and judges sin. He's, and it's bronze. So let's, what's that mean? You know, what's going on here? Well, here's the idea. He stands ready to judge with a burning zeal to purify our lives. Now remember, the ascended Christ, where is he located right now? Right hand of the Father. And how long is he there? Until, until the Father says so. And with that promise is, sit, he's, the Father says to the Son, sit until I make your enemies a footstool. What are these feet like? They're bronze burning judgment. There's coming a day. You ever heard the song, these boots are made for? Carmen. We, we must expand your cultural, cross-cultural abilities. These boots are made for walking. Well, these feet are made for judging. And one day in the book of Revelation, we see he will trample under his, under his feet his enemies. But before that, these feet of judgment judge his church to purify his church before he comes. And that's the idea here. That's the idea. And they're burning. They're smoldering. It's like metal that has been taken out of the fire. Bronze means judgment. That's the idea. The burning feet, his burning commitment. The bronze is his divine judgment. And the idea is metal was put into fire to burn up the dross, the impurities, and to refine the pure metal. So here's the idea. We are righteous in Christ and he is judging the church to remove the impurities of our sin before he comes that he may reward us. But when he burns the lives of unbelievers, there's no righteousness of Christ there. There's good works, but they're not good enough. There's good people, but they're not righteous people. They have rejected the Son, and they will be burned with an eternal fire. And God is just to do this, for He is both merciful and just. It's interesting, when you look at these letters, every letter, except for two churches, He says, I have this against you. I have this against you. What does Christ have against us this morning? What in our life does his burning gaze, his searching gaze see that his white hot holiness cannot accept? What in our lives? And if you're a believer, you don't have to fear that because you have been justified. You've been declared right with God. You're right with him. He's not going to judge you to condemn you. He's judging you to purify your life, to cleanse your life. And you say, well, I don't think I need any cleansing. Well, that's because you're not looking at this vision. 
It's because you're not looking at the vision. When you see his holiness, you're like, I see my sinfulness. And I run to the one. I run to the one who forgave me and wants to cleanse me. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we claim that we didn't know about this on the judgment day, look at number six. See his strong voice. See his strong voice. The, in verse 15, his voice was like the sound of many waters. So our vision, it's like down in Branson, there's sight and sound. Okay, so he's moved from sight to sound again. And it's that mighty voice. Why? Because how does God judge? How does Jesus judge? He judges according to his spoken word. Have you, have you heard him speak this past week? He's speaking in a whisper, the still, small voice of his spirit. When I am convicted of sin, it's never a shout from heaven. It's this, the spirit within me saying, Chris, stop that. Chris, you need to be doing this. You're not doing it. You need to be doing this. And it comes through being in this book. This book will keep you from sin. Or sin will keep you from this book. But one day, he's going to shout. And his word is going to exercise absolute judgment. It's interesting. Oh, man, did... No, okay, no, I thought I skipped one. His spoken words have all power, all powerful ability to accomplish his will. So his voice is his spoken word. Now, here's what's good. Every one of these letters says, write. And every letter ends with, he who has ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. He's speaking. He's speaking. He's speaking. And you know what's good about God's spoken word? Listen to me. Listen to me. It's quick to save and it's slow to judge. But it does both. Quick to save. Quick to cleanse, quick to forgive, long-suffering, slow to judge. But he does both. And it happens every time. Getting into the Word of God is the best thing I do, and it's the hardest thing I do. Because he sees me, and I see him, and I see me as I really am. Number seven, how does he speak? See his spiritual leaders. See his spiritual leaders. I don't want to dwell on this. There's richness here. The seven stars, I believe, are not angelic. They are the seven messengers, the, the, the pastors and elders of those churches. God speaks through the word and he speaks through his leaders. But they are in his right hand. You know, we got a lot of pastors and a lot of scandal in the church, but Christ is not he, he he is sinless and the church may fail churches fail at times pastors certainly fail at times none of us are sinless but he has them in his right hand pastors are accountable to him to be above reproach and they don't wield any power that is not delegated to them 
So there's a lot, there's a lot there, okay? But we want to move on. I, I, just want, I don't want you to miss that. This, this comes through imperfect messengers, but they're accountable. How serious is this? Look at number eight. See his serious discipline. See his serious, sobering, solemn discipline. Look at verse 16. In his right hand are the seven stars, and out of his mouth come a sharp two-edged sword. I think it's interesting that the messengers are tied to the message. It's his judgment, not us. It's his grace, not a pope or a priest or a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Baptist priest. It doesn't come through them. It comes from his word. But it's a sharp two-edged sword. It's a sharp two-edged sword. The two-edged sword coming out of his mouth is his authority to severely, seriously discipline his people according to his word. It's a sword to cut. And it's a sword that in Revelation 19, it is the sword out of his mouth that he brings final judgment on a rebellious word. But before that time, he uses the sword of his word like a surgeon does to do what? Like a scalpel to take out the cancer. You can, have, you can be thrust in with a sharp knife for two reasons. Somebody wants to kill you or they want to heal you. And the sharp two-edged sword of the spoken word of God will do both. Either you repent and come to him and he cuts out your sin and places a new heart in you, or you wait till the final judgment and you will be slayed according to his word. The church is not Christ's enemy, but sin is. And he does not tolerate it in his people. I need to be reminded of that. Me personally, I need to be reminded of that. And the way he does it is through my family, through people in our church, but most of it by being in this word and the Holy Spirit convicting me. Sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. And how does it end? Look at number nine. See his shining glory. See his shining glory. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. Verse 16. There's only one thing left to say after we see Christ for who he really is as the essential judge of his people. And it's this glory, glory, glory. I like what Paul says, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. How great is his glory? It shines brighter than the sun at its strongest at midday. You know what this whole vision is about? Let me read 1 Peter four seventeen through 18. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those that don't obey the gospel? 
And if it's with difficulty, through suffering, through perseverance, through confessing sin and humbling, asking forgiveness, if this is how the righteous are saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Judgment begins with the house of God. God is purifying his people. He's up there. We're down here. Don't let his distance distort your perception. And I'm telling you, popular Christianity, at least in our American culture, this lesson is very foreign. Jesus is judge. I don't want anybody judging my life. Oh, but when it's Jesus whose feet have gone through the fire of the cross, who offered his sinless life as a substitute for your sinfulness, and when he has given you his righteousness and his spirit so that you can live holy as he is holy, then for him to judge our lives is a good thing. It's a good thing. I can tell you... I. I, I I've never sinned and looked back and said, well, that was a good decision. That ended well. I need to keep doing that. Sin always ends in regret. But when I have confessed, I've always like, oh, that was the best thing. And when I have done what I ought to do, when I ought to do it, I never regret it. It doesn't mean, it, it doesn't mean there's not suffering. It doesn't mean there's not persecution. It doesn't mean that it was easy, but by the Spirit, I've never regretted it, and neither will you. So look in your notes. The vision of the ascended judge is essential so that we can be overcomers till he comes. What do we need to do out of this message? I want to end with this. Look at how it began. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. What did John have to do to see the vision? He had to do what? He had to turn. And literally, that's a word that's used in the Bible for repenting. Where did, why, don't you find it interesting that John, Jesus wants to reveal himself to John, one of his own... And by the way, you know the last time John saw Jesus was 60 years earlier as he was ascending. And then all of a sudden, but he's behind him. Why? Because you'll never see Jesus until you repent. You've got to turn around. So my point this morning is this. Is your back to Jesus this morning? How was it this week? Did you have your back to Jesus? And if you want to see him as he is, you've got to put your back to the world and face him. Look full in his glorious face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. Isn't that wonderful? And then look how it ends. Look how this vision ends. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell as dead. That's what we should respond to this morning. See, this isn't a fun message. Jesus isn't a statue you put on your dashboard to keep you safe. Jesus isn't a picture that you put in your wallet. I had a Jesus picture as a high schooler, and I'd say, you want to see my senior picture? I mean, it was blasphemous, but that's, that's, I, was a, I was just a goofball. Okay? I thought it was cool at the time, Jim. Um, 
That's not who Jesus is. That's not the vision of him. Are you with me? Well, I shouldn't have done that. I got you distorted. So, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. He falls dead. But what does this mighty, glorious Jesus do with his right hand of power? He comes and he puts it on him. And he says, hey, John, you think you're a dead man. But you know what? I am the resurrection and the life. And though you're dead in your sins, I can resurrect you. And not just resurrect you, but take you up with me to be seated on the right hand of the Father. The whole Bible. And you know what's cool about this? One last thing. A little Greek nerdiness, okay? There's, in this vision, there's two finite verbs, and they're both seen. The rest are just prepositions describing. So he says in verse 12, Then I turned to see. And he says, Having turned, I saw. That's a finite verb. Then in verse 17, When I saw, that's a finite verb. God wants you to see him. He wants you to see him as he really is. I didn't want to... We'll have one, maybe two more lessons. But I didn't want us to leave this series without seeing the essential judge. Amen? Let him judge your life because it will be rewarding in the end. Let's pray. Father, I'm so glad the Holy Spirit and your sharp two-edged sword does the work and not me because I can't pierce hearts. And my heart needs to be pierced. And so, Lord, may we See as John sees. May we keep on repenting, putting our back to the world so that we can look full in your wonderful face. And may we not have the distance between us distorted, but see you as you really are. Because only then can we see ourselves as we really are. We pray this in Jesus' blessed name. 